You're listening to The Peace Corner with a group of young, peace-hungry interns at GPAC, the global partnership for the prevention of armed conflict. In a world riddled with violent conflict, peace can feel elusive and peace building can sound abstract. We want to change that with The Peace Corner. Who are the people breaking away from the discourses of hate and violence and transforming the status quo? What personally drives these people to peace building? There are many stories of peace, some which inspire us, fill us with hope, and others which make us hungry for change. Each podcast, we talk to a different peace builder about their own personal experience in the field, from Nicaragua to Palestine and beyond. This is a chance to hear from the people putting themselves on the line for peace, the people who remain steadfast in their pursuit of more peaceful societies, and who incidentally are delightful to talk to. So nestle into a corner and listen to the voices making peace possible. Today, your host is Rafael. Bom dia, good morning. I remember being around eight years old and watching the news of destruction caused during the 2003 Iraqi war. Being very far, safe at home in Brazil, I remember feeling the despair, hearing about the deaths for so many reasons that I just couldn't understand. I remember thinking how it would be a great life to be able to just stop these wars. As years went by, I shelved the career ambition as something like peace could never pay the bills. Well, lo and behold, here I am today at GPAC trying to make that work. But still, a number of questions plagued me as I started this road for a life in the struggle for peace. How can we help others without imposing our worldview? What is the impact of grassroots peace work in comparison to those luscious halls in Geneva and New York with busy UN diplomats? Can these two work together or are they at odds? How do we as peace builders maintain our faith in a brighter tomorrow? I don't have an answer to those questions, but maybe Jonathan Rudy does. So I sat down with him to have a chat. Jonathan is a peacebuilding expert with over 25 years of experience in the field and now the Senior Advisor for Human Security for the Alliance for Peacebuilding. He's also the peacemaking residence of Elizabeth, Elizabethtown College. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Peace Corner. This is Rafael, your host for the day. And I am actually here in Vienna with our very own Jonathan Rudy, who has been a GPAC member for... Couple of years. Couple now. of years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're just having a nice coffee and tea by the by the patio of the hotel. And that's why you may hear some birds, but that just gives you just a <laughs> an idea of where we are. Uh, so John, why don't you start just introducing yourself a bit for yeah. the listener? Well, I'm Jonathan Rudy, go by John. Um, I'm a, a professor of peace and conflict studies at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania in the United States. Uh, my title there is Peacemaker in Residence, so I, I think I dig that title because uh, I haven't heard it very often. And uh, it's original, it, yeah. <laughs> it's original, and I think it captures kind of what I want to do, okay. uh, both in an institutional way, but also in in a global way. Um, mm -hmm. Which is why I'm uh, engaged with uh, with GPAC. I am a senior advisor for human security at the Alliance for Peacebuilding, mm -hmm. and uh, through that have been have gotten involved in GPAC in promoting human security as an agenda. So. Right. I have a number of other titles, but maybe that, that'll bore everybody. <laughs> yeah, so. fair enough. But that's interesting with the Alliance for Peacebuilding, because I also, doing my background research on you, slightly <laughs> stockish, but I saw that you did a lot of work with grassroots organizations all around uh, the world. So actually, that's yeah. what I wanted to you know chat with you about, yeah. is the difference and impact of grassroots level initiatives and high 
peace building level initiatives because yeah. GPAC we're trying to connect those two, right? Yeah. So yeah. that that was the that's the theme of the talk yeah. today. To well, and I think you you kind of captured my whole career <laughs> beginning in 1987 or even going back further if you want to. Um, that I have a bias toward the grassroots. That I right. have a bias toward community level engagement. Now that being said, I've always been an outsider, right? Mm-hmm. I, I I'm a U.S. citizen. I was born in Canada, but uh, um, uh, but but the way I've worked professionally, I have a real bias toward communities taking charge of their own uh, situation, overcoming violence. And so um, I have tried to lo- walk alongside those people, those communities, those real hero heroines and, and uh, heroes of peace. Um, and, and I can't take credit for any of that except – uh, that I have uh, accompanied them and learned from them mm-hmm. uh, the lessons of what it takes in in various places. Yeah. And I would say, you know, I've worked in contexts where civil society has been really robust, uh-huh. um, such as the Philippines. Uh, and I worked in places where civil society is really under threat and is really... Um, or non-existent and uh, you know the more authoritarian a regime uh, a governance uh, the less participatory I'd say the more stress um, civil society is under so Mm -hmm. I'm kind of wandering here but uh, you have to pull me back on track (laughs) (laughs) no but that's interesting so you mentioned the power of them Uh, just in a few words what exactly is that because we have all this theoretical perspectives but from your um, first hand experience what yeah, like what is the what is the, the potential? Yeah, I think that potential has to do with leadership. It has to do with vision and imagining. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I've learned is that in, in places of really protracted violence, um, the, again, the brain re- researchers are reinforcing this, that, that imagination, the ability mm-hmm. to create and, um, you know, kind of uh, build something out of nothing to imagine the future you want, it really gets under, uh, under threat, really gets diminished. Violence does that to us. Mm-hmm. And so the task of the peace builder is to, to help people imagine and in so doing maybe develop some steps to 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 extricate themselves from the, the right. level of violence the the stuckness of their conflicts so so and you do that work of imagination right i think yeah uh, and how do you try to encourage people to develop that and pull that out of them in those kind of situations well, you know, in a, in a training uh, scenario, for mm. example, we, we do things that kind of do the, like the brain gym, you know, that, that get the brain working. Um, I have a colleague who has been doing uh, music therapy in, in very traumatic situations. Mm. And, and what she's telling us is that sometimes even the, the, that the brain is so incapable of, of moving beyond that trauma that what she starts with is simple rhythm exercises. You know, just can you beat a rhythm with two steps? sticks. And if not, that may be actually the first step. I can't say that I've ever worked in in a situation where there's that amount. Uh, So in our workshops, we will just do the, you know, the creative imagining exercise. You got to try to problem solve something really simple, Mm -hmm. you know, can you give an example? Um, So uh, I do this, this uh, uh, exercise with a, with a long three meter pipe and uh, people need to try to lift it up to waist level. And it's, it's, uh, it's about leadership. Uh, that one is about leadership. It's about uh, co- uh, communication and uh-huh. cooperation. Uh, it's about 
imagining the escalation of conflict as this pipe kind of flies to the roof because people aren't prepared. They have no experience with, with that kind of an exercise. Um, uh, exercises of perception, for example. Mm -hmm. I, I'm fond of collecting uh, pictures of these these things that the psychologists have given us. Can can you see the the child that's in the, the middle of this picture? Right. Can you see what what is uh, what is behind all these uh, these lines these uh, uh, slanted lines? You know, can you mm -hmm. read the text that's in there? Those kinds of things. So, so you're kind of if I'm getting your your experience correctly, you're trying to bring us back from peace building to a level of just human healing in a way. Yeah, I, that's a great way to put that because, because here's, here's my elevator definition of, yeah. of, of peace building, Give right? The pitch. <laughs> it's a sentence that, and it, again, it comes out of my 20 or 30 years of experience. Mm -hmm. Peace building is connecting that which has been re disconnected by violence wow. and, and, you know, violence does fragment. We know yeah. that it, it, the gray matter, our brains get fragmented, but, but our, also our social cohesion mm -hmm. gets fragmented and so so peace building is kind of working at reconnecting that a major task is reconciliation yeah uh, a major task is is forgiveness whether it's ourself whether it's others you know forgiveness is for ourself mm -hmm. i can't sit around waiting for you to forgive me if mm -hmm. you've harmed me right um so uh, yeah a major task of that is to again imagine what do these restored relationships look like and why should i do that mm -hmm. and how are we all connected yeah. again one of this my starting points is all things are connected and and but how do I imagine that? Mm -hmm. Is that true? You know, and, and so in a lot of the trainings I do, we kind of explore that. And, yeah. and I welcome when participants push back on me and say, now, wait a minute, in my context. So, um, yeah. We are welcoming when the participants challenge you, I guess. Yeah, because look, I'm a lifelong learner. My yeah. my philosophy of education, and I'm an educator. I got to admit it, right? I come from a long line of educators. Mm -hmm. My philosophy in education is that I'm a lifelong learner. Mm. My role is to facilitate learning, and that includes my own learning. Because the more I do this, the more participants engage with what we're the content. Uh, the more the more we all learn, the more we collectively add to the greater common good and the kind of the, the, the repository of best, best practices in this field and, and, and even beyond. And I would say some of the best practices that's coming out is this thing, all things are connected, right? It's not just a peace building task. Mm -hmm. It's a task for scientists. It's a task for mothers. It's a task for political leaders. Mm -hmm. it's, it's everybody's task to be able to figure out, hmm, how do I amend these, these rifts that have developed in, in society uh, between people? And in the peace building context, uh, we were talking a bit about grassroots. Do you think... Um, because it is such a hard thing to kind of see that connectedness and go through that journey of forgiveness. Is it easier to hear that from someone from your own community, which may understand and empathize with you? Or is it easier to hear that from an outsider because they don't have a bias? Oh, you know, like that's a great question. And, <laughs> and I would say that it's it's. It's a combination, right? I mm. need to, as an outsider, most places, except in my own classroom in, you know, in, in Pennsylvania in the United States, yeah. uh, I'm an outsider. And so I got to learn uh, what my own power is in that situation, mm. my own limitations, my own ability to, uh, to be humbled when I get it wrong, you know, and yeah. to say, 
Oh, wow. Sorry. You know, I was impressing my own baggage, my own cultural kind of uh, uh, um, blinders, if you will, uh-huh. on this situation. Is there an and, anecdote of that so we can get a picture? Well, I remember one of the most formational times was at Mindanao Peace Building Institute, where I've taught for the last 17 in years. In the Philippines, right? In the Philippines, right. in Mindanao, Philippines. Um, I was doing a kind of a, a, a conflict mapping, which is what we've been doing here. Yeah, the sounds very familiar. conflict mapping. <laughs> and, and one of my participants who's from, uh, is a Muslim and from a Muslim area, stood up and said, can I give you my definition of, uh, and the analysis that I've done? And uh, you know, we made space to hear his analysis mm-hmm. and it was one of the most pivotal times in my life to say, there's wisdom in the room, there's, uh, there's perspective and, and education is about creating the space whereby that's a, that, that's a venue for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember thinking, okay, learned a major lesson here to just slow down, allow, um, allow the wisdom in the room to, to emerge. Yeah, and I think that's the, that's the, the role. Yeah, I mean, the role of the educator, right? It is to, to bring out the best in people and to make them, yeah. make them hope. So would you define peace builders as educators? I think it's some level. Or is that your personal? We all baggage? have to be, right? Yeah. Because, because education is a key part of of peace building, mm-hmm. um, and and you know many of us who are in this and who are outsiders in you know in other yeah. places find ourselves in an education role. Yeah. Uh, certainly, and and you know when you lead a conflict transformation, I mean a, a conflict analysis workshop. Uh, to some degree, you've got to educate because there, there's a there's a knowledge component to this mm-hmm. that it's not all there is, mm-hmm. right? Because there's an experiential, there's a, a component of engaging with your own area and grappling both internally but also collectively as a community. So, I, yeah, that's a that's a really great question I haven't thought about before. Uh, of course, my my initial response is to some degree we're all educators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we're in a lifelong learning role, uh, always learning, even into our 90s and 100s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we can, we can, you know, learn the new things that, that, may, um, that may provide some new insight and, and be a, a catalyst in mm-hmm. that. And you mentioned a bit before, kicking back to your experience, uh, your work with Alliance for Peacebuilding. And Alliance for Peace Building is, for those of you who don't know, a very leading um, organization in the world of peace building. And um, my question is, what do you think small grassroots organizations which have this potential can learn from such great actors you know, like AFP, AFP or right. yeah. Search for Common Ground or yeah. those really? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think there's a role there. Uh, Alliance for Peace Building is more than a hundred organizations who do mm-hmm. have direct grassroots experience. Right. The, the, the role of Alliance for Peace Building often is to kind of collect some of that wisdom and then translate it into policy uh, an advocacy kinds of of role because of their great connection with so many so many organizations and networks in in other places mm-hmm. and see this this is a critical function uh, whoever it is who who has a, a large network mm-hmm. uh, and and is doing policy and advocacy work because 
what we find in peace building, you know, I talked about the, the things that are broken, the things that aren't yeah. connected. Right. Well, just think of the simple pyramid of, of actors, track one, track two, grassroots. Right. There is a profound gap between track one and grassroots actors. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, organizations like Alliance for Peace Building are helping to bridge that gap, both in knowledge and in information and in data, in, in terms of uh, promoting ideas that come bottom up into a policy mm-hmm. level and saying, hey, do you know, hey, do you yeah. know what they're saying at the grassroots? Do you know what they're saying mm-hmm. in the communities? Yeah. And, uh, and that profound gap, I think, is uh, if we can learn to bridge that, mm-hmm. I think we can make some different choices here. Yeah, because for me, I mean, and I'm very young in this field. Uh, I just turned 23 today as we, I was chatting. Hey, happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks. Um, <laughs> it seems that people at a high, such a track one level is like, I track one for you guys who don't really understand what we're talking about, which the, the diplomatic and government levels. There's a lot of people with a great will to want to do good things. Like I'm sure there's a lot of great uh, UN officials who, even though they have a lot of bureaucracy, have such a will, but don't have exactly the the eyes on the ground to see what the people actually need. So I, I, I see that that link can be so transformative for sure. Well, and you know, I talked about the gap of track one, not knowing grassroots, uh-huh. but there's another gap and that is grassroots who only experiences track one and who only experiences governance mm-hmm. as the helicopter flying over right. with machine guns sticking out of uh-huh. it. And yeah. so, so, so part of bridging that gap is to, is to humanize the track one actors, the politicians and say, yeah. you know, there, there are people up there who are really caught in this political or economic system mm-hmm. um, who, who really want to do good. But they need your insights. They need your help, and so mm-hmm. so that you know, there's a reverse kind of gap there that yeah. uh, that we also need to act, um, acknowledge. It's, yeah, it's interesting because we talk so much about communication between parties of the conflict or between uh, victims and perpetrators. But there is such a need, exactly, for communication between actors in our field, right? And I yeah. think and not trying to plug our own organization, but GPAC, <laughs> I think, tries to do that. GPAC's a great example of yeah. that. In fact, the. the, the the days we've spent uh, the last couple of days here in Vienna have mm-hmm. been a wonderful exchange of ideas. I looked around the table and there wasn't a duplication of, of nationalities yeah. around the table uh, <laughs> yeah. of all 20 of us, you know. Yeah. And and I think that that GPAC is providing that space, the forum, in meetings like this and other meetings mm-hmm. uh, whereby those ideas can be can be shared and, um, and, you know, the, the good, really good advocacy work that GPAC is doing globally mm-hmm. um, is really kind of contributing to uh, people getting to know each other, closing right. these gaps, bridging uh-huh. these, these, these concepts. Uh, let me ask you a bit of a provocatively question uh, from someone with more experience. We're seeing, we see the news and it seems to me that things got worse. And I think that's a... Um, a feeling that many people have, and I think that was echoed actually quite a bit in the mm-hmm. in the in the conference that we went to. Is that true? Is that not true? Have things <laughs> where, like, and if so, and if things did get worse, why do you think that is? Yeah, I think we're at a turning point mm-hmm. in our in our collective humanity, wow, whereby we yeah. are moving from a an understanding of nation states. And let me just let me just kind of draw an analogy. This is the yeah. cutting edge of my thinking um, that that, you know, we're moving from nation states where there are these hard borders and it's and it's national security about borders, about governance. Uh-huh. 
what, what we're doing in GPAC with Alliance for Peacebuilding, we're, we're promoting human security. And so we are moving into an era where we have got to develop a larger collective consciousness, a human consciousness mm-hmm. that says they're no longer these borders, that those things aren't the important things. Mm-hmm. Now, I would push this just a little further and say we need a biospheric consciousness. And so what does a United Nations, and there's a, there I'm falling back into the same lingo, but right. bear with me here. Yeah. You know, what does it mean to develop a table like the United Nations where everything has a voice, where the water has equal representation, the air has mm-hmm. an equal representation, the earth has an equal representation. Oh, and by the way, humans are there too, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and all of the other living, living things. Mm-hmm. So we, so I challenge anybody listening to in their universities develop a a, a biolytical uh, science program instead of a political science. What does it mean to understand the relationship of all things? Mm-hmm. That being said, so you, back to your original question, yeah. I think getting better or worse. We're, we're living in a time when all of that is getting reordered. And it's going to look chaotic. Right. It's going to look like it looks now. Mm-hmm. For those of us who are in the, the business of social change and social design, yeah. and it's at this point I give my students a caveat that go, look, I wake up some mornings, I can't even change my own attitude. Uh-huh. And we're designing social change? <laughs> give me a break, right? But I'm thinking, you know, those of us in this field are designing new ways with which people and all things relate to each other. Mm-hmm. And it's going to look a little bit like it does now mm-hmm. as things get reordered and as our consciousness expands. Yeah. So anybody who's under 25 who's listening, uh, you know, I have a lot of hope because what I'm seeing as I teach the next generation is just a lot of resiliency, a lot of flexibility of mind mm-hmm. that can reimagine this stuff mm-hmm. uh, in a way that, that, that is going to get us to the next stage. Right. But how do you con- reconcile this? I, I find this idea of human consciousness and biological consciousness interesting, but I think I have a promptness to, to buy into that because I, I'm very detached from my country, for instance. Mm-hmm. And that's a bias that I'll freely admit. But how do you reconcile that with identity issues? How yeah, do you, yeah, you know, yeah. because I think maybe even for both of us, we have that bias because we are willing to travel around yeah. and, and we live in different places. How, how do you tell someone from such a, like, that has a very local life, that has, is very attached to his or hers lines right. of identity to take that, you know, greater like yeah. uh, greater is a bad word, but a broader yeah, perspective. Yeah, yeah. And it's a fantastic question. And I think it may be at the root of many things. Mm-hmm. So, so when we talk about identity, you know, and again, we're, maybe some, some places are stuck with identity as national borders. In my uh, interactions with, with first peoples, uh, mm-hmm. first nations, what I'm finding is an ability to, uh, to navigate identity based on other things. And so mm-hmm. maybe that new identity is not so geographically bounded, mm-hmm. but it is the concept of, of being anchored in the earth mm-hmm. in a respect that would allow all people to be grounded and at the same time develop a collective identity 
that that I am one of of of, of many things in the biosphere, mm-hmm. and as I develop a respect for all of those things, um, that is where the respect for the other person. If I can develop respect for the earth and the and the air mm-hmm. and the you know the fire and the and the water, then maybe I can develop a respect for the so person with a very different identity than I am. Yeah. And, 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 and in so doing, we kind of develop a collective identity. Does that make sense? I mean, I, I think I, I, <laughs> I, I, I get, I get the, I, I get the link. It is, I think it, we have a long ways to go, but I, yeah. I, I, as you said, I think it was a quote that I, I heard on the conference. We are moments of breakdown or moments of breakthrough. Yeah. I think yeah, Lina exactly. from uh, Search for Common yeah. Ground mentioned that. And I thought that was really interesting because exactly like, yeah, this moment of chaos is a moment of re- reconstruction, yeah. I guess. But, um, I also wanted to talk about a different, because we're in a very meta level right now. Yeah, yeah, but exactly. I, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think that it's interesting as well to show, to chat about some work that you've been doing in terms of social enterprise and peace building yeah. and the more really day-to-day how to make it financially yeah. viable, yeah. sustainable. Yeah. Can you share a bit with us sure. the experience? Yeah, one of, one of the other titles I failed to mention is a senior fellow at the Social Enterprise Institute at our college, Elizabethtown College. And um, what I've been, been thinking about uh, is the, the cost of violence to the planet. Um, mm. Institute of Economics for Peace has been giving us some good research to, to suggest that $14.3 trillion, get that? $14.3 trillion a year we spend collectively on violence. So with that much money, $14.3 trillion mm. at play each year, the question is, how do we reclaim some of that? That's a lot of money. And, and it's, you know, it's basically wasted on, on responding to violence. Yeah. So what, what, I'm, what social enterprise and impact investing is doing is saying it's flipping the values of business around. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, coming to the, it, it's bringing a values first, a people first approach to business to say, well, what's good for people here? Because, because human enterprise and the making of money is, you know, it's, it's paramount today. And, mm-hmm. and, and I've always had this question since I started peace building. How do we engage business? How do we engage corporations? Mm-hmm. How do we engage finance? Um, and I've never found a place for that until now. And realizing that a major partner in all of this realignment that, that's going, that's happening, um, is if we bring the values of respect, of dignity, and dignity not only of persons but of planet, mm-hmm. you know, to the, the, the task of, of uh, creating in, in enterprise, um, that, that we could leverage a huge force for positive change. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so, so social enterprise and impact in investing is uh, something I'm, t- I'm paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Now, look, I'm a subject matter expert in peace building, mm-hmm. and I've been brought on to social enterprise. Again, how cool is that? That's right. I mean, as a model for, yeah. you know, should, should all investment firms have a peacemaker in residence? Mm-hmm. Why not? Why not? Can you yeah. imagine a world where, where, where the social scientists, where the, where the counselors, where the trauma healing specialists are part of financial investment? Can you imagine a world that, that welcomes that kind of 
that kind of uh, engagement because they're thinking, look, all we know is, is how to make money and how to make a lot of it. But what we really want to do is social good mm-hmm. while we're doing this. Mm-hmm. I, I can see that world. And I know we're we're a long ways from it, but yeah. but I can uh, suddenly I've the, the model has crystallized in my head, mm-hmm. and 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 I really think it'll flip kind of this this whole world of NGOs upside down. Yeah, because, hopefully it will. Right, I think we need a rebooting. Yeah, especially in terms of funding, because I think funding is something that it is so. It takes so much of our work in a way that it shouldn't, you know. Like we, we work program us. by program, we work budget by budget, short term yeah. by short term, and of course, business. Uh, business is is a longer term investment. If you yeah. can get your investors to to imagine where you're going with your business, mm-hmm. could we as peace builders get the investors to imagine? the trillions will save right. when we're successful. It's also a, a different way of seeing a return of our investment, right? It, yeah. It's return, not only monetary, but return, social return over investment, I guess you could call it like that. And also um, what you will not be losing in the future. Yeah. Well, and, and this is the gap between what we're doing now in the whole field of peace building uh-huh. and then connecting with social enterprise impact investing. Yeah. It's, it, it is this ability to, to measure gains. Now, we're doing very good monitoring and evaluation work. The next step there, which I think is the gap, is putting a financial cost to that. Mm-hmm. And the ability to communicate, do you know if we do this activity and do it successfully, uh, we'll be recouping this amount of money off of the $14 trillion that's being wasted, right? So, yeah. uh, I, I don't know. There's a lot of work to be done in that. I yeah. think there's a lot of good minds at work with that already uh-huh. uh, in connecting these two fields. And so, I'm, I'm excited to be really yeah. a part of and it. And it seems like a very, uh, we're, uh, we also talked about that in the conference, it's a disruptive idea. It's, it's very disruptive. Not evolution, like it, we are, yeah. was, what, what did the revolution, not evolution. Right? Yeah. I think that, yeah. that could be something like that. And, and just, let me just add that I think yeah. It will end the chasing of funding. In fact, if you're an NGO and you're doing good, solid work in peace building, you'll have to fight off the investors. <laughs> that's that's the world I imagine. That's a beautiful. World. <laughs> and let me ask you the last question just to wrap this up because yeah. I see that our time is coming down, and it's more of a personal question. Um, you've been doing this for a while, and I think you've seen the best and the worst in, in people. What has been one truth that you've have seen that has been? Stable, yeah. One truth that all cases have have shown you, and maybe that's a you can get as philosophical as you like <laughs> on this one. I think you know Henry Ford, uh, God bless the capitalist in him, said <laughs> said something once that I think is really true, and that is think you can, think you can't. Either way, you're right. The people that I have been privileged to work alongside, who I find are most resilient are those who have found the ability to live in gratitude mm-hmm. for each day mm-hmm. to somehow manage the fear that again comes to them daily and to to see the humanity in others uh in, you know in and live in that gratitude i i think there's a resiliency there uh, in those folks that that has really inspired me mm-hmm. and has kept me going even my in my darkest hours right. I remember a colleague of mine uh, when the, the the rounds of wars in Mindanao came back again you know every three years 
And I looked at her and I said, I am tempted to despair and throw up my hands. And she looked at me and said, you don't have the luxury to do that. And that was a real reference point to me to say, yeah, I need to find a way to, to stay engaged, to stay helpful. That's profound enough. That was good. That was really great. I just want to say thank you so much for this interview and thank you so much for, um, yeah, chatting with us and a bit of your experience. It's been great, Raphael. Well, that's it for today's episode of the Peace Corner. Thank you for listening to the voices making peace possible. Tune in next time when our gender intern Maria talks to Sharon Bogwin Rose, feminist and gender expert, to explore women's rights and their participation in peace processes.